So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hello and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Today we'll be talking about perhaps the most important innovation in the energy system in the last half century, hydraulic fracturing. As a result of hydraulic fracturing, U.S. production of oil and natural gas has increased dramatically, leading to lower energy prices and fewer emissions as it has largely displaced coal. These benefits have been dispersed around the country. While there are relatively few coal mines, conventional oil drilling sites, and nuclear plants in the US, there are tens of thousands of hydraulic fracturing wells that have been drilled over the past few years from Pennsylvania to Colorado, from Texas to North Dakota. And this makes fracking an everyday experience for many Americans. The practice has raised questions about the local impacts. Communities have reached very different conclusions about the benefits and the costs, with some places banning fracking and others embracing it. Two recent studies have shed light on those impacts. On the benefits side, one study by EPIC director Michael Greenstone and his co-authors found that fracking increases economic activity, employment, income, and house housing prices, with the average household benefiting by about $2,000 a year. However, those benefits could be affected if people's understanding of the health impacts were to change. Since health is such a critical factor, Greenstone decided to dig in further by looking at the health of those born near fracking sites. He and his co-authors found that infants born to mothers living up to two miles from a hydraulic fracturing site suffer from poorer health. The largest impacts were to babies born within about a half mile of a site. Those babies are 25% more likely to be born at a low birth weight. The United States enjoys widely dispersed benefits from hydraulic fracturing, but those benefits depend on local communities allowing it. How should we, as a nation, balance this challenge? What options do policymakers have at the federal, state, and local levels? Recently, EPIC hosted their inaugural policy fellows, Jeff Holmstead, a partner at Bracewell LLP and a former assistant administrator for air and radiation at the EPA under President George W. Bush, and Sue Tierney, a consultant at the analysis group former Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Energy under President Bill Clinton and a State Cabinet Officer for Environmental Affairs in Massachusetts. They explored these questions with Axios Energy and Climate Reporter Amy Harder. Michael Greenstone joined the conversation after presenting some of his research. Let's listen to their conversation. 
Um, just a couple of housekeeping items. Um, number one, thank you very much for having me here. It's great to get out of Washington uh, and get to Chicago. And so we will be discussing up here for the next little bit, and then we'll, I'll throw it out to questions here in the audience. So please be thinking of questions that you'd like to ask. And for those on the live stream, thanks so much for joining us as well. Um, please um, take part in the conversation on Twitter at hashtag epic event, so EPIC event. And with that, I want to do a decidedly non-graphical question, which is the term fracking. Now, there's a lot in a name, and there's a lot in that term fracking. I wrote a lot of stories that had the headline, Big Fracking Problem. And it was just so catchy as a reporter. That's ultimately what my editors ended up doing. So each, to each of you, I mean, can you talk about how much is in the, in the term fracking in terms of, of how much is caught on? Because isn't it what we're really talking about, an increase in oil and gas drilling combined with fracking and horizontal drilling. It seems like fracking has taken on this greater than life uh, role in this debate about fossil fuels and climate change. Um, Michael, do you want to start on that? Uh, so I'll say this, and I'm going to really leave the real answer to the experts here, but uh, my friends in the oil and gas industry insist that I spell F-R-A-C-I-N-G to kind of avoid your headline, uh, but of course, my friends in the environmental community won't, uh, insisted it be spelled F-R-A-C-K-I-N-G. That, that's, that's what and I'll add. And I noticed add. in your report that you actually use the term hydraulic fracturing. Yes. And that's really what the industry prefers, yeah. even over the, the C less K yeah. uh, framing. It's just too irresistible for opponents to not say no fracking way, <laughs> because it just works, and it's pretty harsh sound. So. It, it's loaded. Jeff, what do you prefer? So as you know, our firm has a strategic communications shot. <laughs> and I can assure you they were not involved in labeling this technology. Um, you know, the industry does try to use hydraulic fracturing, which isn't itself such a great sounding word, but it's really been impossible, in, in part just because of the difficulty of using sort of the cumbersome word. So I think as someone, someone who supports the technology, would be well advised to try to introduce a catchy term that doesn't sound quite so. Uh, no fracking way. <laughs> no. Right. Well, I think it's, the ship has sailed on that. <laughs> yeah. I do actually want to bring the audience in. I have a couple of questions for you all, and they're very easy, and there's no wrong answer. But it's good to kind of get a sense of the room. So raise your hand if you generally support fracking. Raise your hand if you generally oppose fracking. And then raise your hand if you're unsure or neutral. Okay, great. I think we have a pretty good mix. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is, you know, I, I one time moderated debate on fracking at NYU, and everybody's hand went up to say that they opposed it. Of course, New York has banned fracking. So, um, Michael, a question about your reports. What was the most surprising finding in each of them? Mm. Yeah, I guess. Uh, in terms of the, the local economic impacts, I thought it was going to be big, uh, and that didn't seem like that was that surprising. It, but it, it was, the impact was bigger than I thought it was going to be. I mean, the idea that households equate uh, allowing fracking with getting a check for $2,000 per year, every year, uh, that's, you know, I think it's, uh, that's a big deal. Uh, and so I, I guess that surprised me, the magnitude uh, on, on the upside surprised me. Again, that's with 
whatever households' perceptions were of what the health effects are. Um, and then on the, in terms of the infant health effects, I think what I was surprised by is how quickly they disappear in terms of distance uh, from the well. Uh, and I think we, uh, when you read the news media accounts, you thought, oh, it's, the fluids are probably getting the water one way or another, and that's gonna just affect people in a big radius. Uh, and it, you know, that's, it's just not in the data. Uh, and so there, there do appear to be real compromises in infant health, uh, but it's in a pretty narrow range around the site. And is that due to air quality issues or water quality? Yeah, so no, it's a, it's a, it's a, I would say, an unsatisfying feature of the study that we don't have a decisive answer on that. Uh, I, to my eye, it looks like it must be the trucks and the diesel generators and local air pollution uh, right around the, the well site, but I, I, I'll confess that uh, we don't have a decisive answer for that. Jeff, I want to turn to you and you know get your response to, in particular, the health the health impacts um, study. So now, Jeff, for those of you who um, aren't sure, and, and as we stated before, Jeff worked in the in the George W. Bush administration. He was a top official at the EPA, and now he works at a law firm that represents, among many other clients, oil and natural gas producers. So, what's your response to this in terms of the health impact and? And um, what type of response from a policy perspective do you think there needs to be, if any? Um, so I, I, I have to say I was a bit surprised that the magnitude of the health effect was ascertainable from, from, from the data. Um, it obviously raises a number of questions that you showed on your graph. I mean, for one thing, why is the effect apparently less than one to two kilometers than in one, I mean, those are just kind of No, questions. come on, let's not do that. That's no, no, like, no, 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 no. So let's, uh, hold on, the one, this is like a red herring argument. The zero to one versus one to two, they're statistically identical. So like, that's like getting a magnifying glass all the way against the page. And, and are they identical at th from, from zero to three, two, or? Uh, they're, here's what I could say. Uh, they're statistically different from zero at zero to one versus further one to two versus further, two to three further. But the idea of like the small dip between uh, one to two relative to zero to one is a, uh, it's a, it's meant to cast shade. I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but there are people who I think have done that and it ignores that there's statistical imprecision. No, 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 and I, and I, I know so that that's you, not what you're doing, but like, but, but, I, but, but, but you but can me, see me, that I've heard it a lot, so yeah. I'm. But let me, uh, but let me make another. So point. I want to just stomp that out right away. Well, here's the point I. Think and I'm right between <laughs> these guys. <laughs> that's right. But here's the point I think you will agree with, is that, to the extent that these are real effects, we need to understand what they are. And again, as someone who's worked in this field for a long time, um, I agree with Michael that I would expect that it has something to do with, with air pollution. I mean, that's where we- As opposed to water quality. Well, yeah, but, but we've seen that politically, water quality is a much more potent issue. Um, and, and it's just interesting, to me at least, that I think one of the things that is the subject for hopefully follow-up research is to understand really what, what, is, what is responsible for these I think effects. that's and very important. I think that's do. very important, and I think what Jeff has in mind is which, uh, in, uh, now I'm gonna uh, play the anti-academic role here and say for some idealized world where we had perfect information, we could fine tune the regulation, 
just to hit the part of it that was causing the problem, and that should definitely be our goal. But I think there's a scores of pathways. Uh, even if it were the air pollution or the water and we could isolate that, we don't, there's like thousands of chemicals that go in the fracking fluid. So like, I don't hold great hope that we're gonna have very decisive evidence on the exact channel. But I think what we do know is that there are health effects in small distances. Whether that means there should be compensation for people who live in the, those small distances, or there just should be an information campaign. Or and, setbacks, and people, or uh, who yeah, knows. Yeah, like those are all, you know, I, I don't have a dog in a fight as to which way you go with any of those, but I think holding out that uh, there, are, holding in abeyance the idea that there should be regulation until the last scientific thing, which, by the way, I would love to solve, uh, is settled, <laughs> I think is, 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 no, no, is not I, the right so, thing. So, and I, so I, I agree with that. Um, and, and especially if the cost of regulating is relatively modest compared to other things, right? I mean, and, and my impression yep. is, at least from the industry perspective, most operators um, support, believe that they're better off with sort of reasonable regulations. And I think, I think over time, we, we have seen more responsible development of, of shale of shale resources. I do want to get back to the regulation question in a moment, but Sue, I want to go to you. And you know, so as Michael just said, one of the things that surprised him most was the economic benefits of, of fracking and horizontal drilling. Um, what's, you know, you as a former Democratic official in the Clinton administration and sort of are, aside from Michael, who of course worked in the Obama administration, sort of the, the token um, left-leaning person on the panel. Can you talk? <laughs> so let the record reflect it's two against one. <laughs> No, no, I am the academic here. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I'm the referee. So although I will say that, you know, it's funny because I find that in Washington everybody disagrees, and in conferences and panels like this, most people all agree. So it's actually nice that there's a, a variety of opinions here. You haven't seen Sue and me before then. Have I you? have. We were on a panel once in Washington. We were, exactly. And it was right. a, that was fun. Right, it was. Um, but... So on the economic benefits, how do you, I mean, what's your response to that? And, and how do you engage in constructive dialogue with environmental groups and others who, many of whom are say, who are like anti-fracking, ban fracking? How do you, how do you bridge that divide? Uh, how do I bridge that divide? I'm not sure I do, but a, a couple of things in response to that rich question. One of them is, I don't think that the environmental community is homogeneous on this issue. Uh, there are the water quality environmental folks. There are the carbon and methane uh, environmental advocates. And then you could go on and on. There are local community concerns about just kind of the hazards of living, which I thought you did a, a great job of talking about in your paper, of the trucks, just a lot of wear and tear on communities. So I, I, I personally come down and I know you didn't say this, Amy, but I personally come down to saying this is just, there is no clear answer here on whether this is a, you know, a fabulous thing or not a fabulous thing. Do you thing. think the economic benefits are a good thing? Yes, and they are quite double-edged. So good things from a, a very large macro point of view. Uh, the, the consumer savings are just extraordinary. Yeah. Um, in terms of the amount of money that is in consumers' pockets, businesses and residential consumers associated with natural gas prices being so low, gasoline prices being so low, and electricity prices being so low as a result of that. But 
And we, and we saw, as Michael said, that the carbon emissions of gas uh, shifting coal away from so much power generation, that's terrific from a carbon point of view. But natural gas prices are putting tremendous pressure on the number of existing nuclear plants that, that are in the eastern part of the United States. Every time one of those shuts down, that's carbon emissions going up because you're going to turn on more gas plants. And I could go on and on, but I won't. There are just very complicated local impacts, which I thought you did a great job of looking at. But that's really complicated uh, macro ones. Natural gas, for example, is just really wonderful and helpful for integrating with renewable resources in ways that other kinds of generating technologies cannot. But renewables and, and natural gas folks see themselves as completely opposed to each other in terms of hurting market share. So it's just unfortunately very complicated. I wanted can, can to, I make not satisfying. One, but one observation about that. Sure, yeah. At least we're not in a at least we're in a situation where there is arguably local benefits as well as local costs yeah. because the the much more difficult question is let's say that there's significant national benefits but significant local costs how do you deal with the distribution? I was just issues? thinking about the same issue. And, and yeah. that you know, what's an example that, of that? Like a coal plant? Uh, you know, that? you could uh, citing a, oh, a nuclear plant. Citing like, of a gas pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to me, the most, in some ways, the most interesting statistic, which you mentioned, is that effect on home prices is at least a decent surrogate on what people think of the yeah. local impacts. Yeah. And the fact that on average, home prices have increased by 6% or something, yeah. suggests that people are aware, at least they have, they're aware of the concerns that have been raised about health impacts, so I, and yet pe so people still Jeff's are willing point, to pay more. This point's super important, which is that, uh, so in my measure of how much would households willing to pay, maybe it's easier to talk about housing prices. The idea of why housing prices are so important is that in principle they should capture both all the benefits and all the costs. Uh, and so if you see them go up, that's saying that local communities say, yeah, well, maybe there are some health, negative health impacts, but they're outweighed by whatever the local economic benefit. And compared to industrial facilities, right? I mean, that, that's so industrial facilities that arguably benefit a lot of people impact on home prices is pretty significantly negative. But the issue here, could you, I don't yeah. forgive me, Amy, the issue is. Right now it sees two on one against two. <laughs> Within a community. Which does not make it a fair fight. <laughs> We're the, gonna lose. <laughs> the community of local citizens, for example, in a, in a community where hydraulic fracturing and directional drilling is occurring, they, it is so, uh, heterogeneous in terms of which side of this fight you're on. And so the discussion of an effect of being net positive or net negative for the community, just, which I think you did a fabulous job of doing, just overlooks the fact that within these local communities, there are people who are just on each side of a third rail. No, and that's absolutely true. And I think one thing that markets can help sort out is the people who don't like it are probably going to sell their house to people who don't care so much. So that brings me to um, my first lightning round question, which means that you answer um, a quick yes or no, um, although I will allow you to potentially elaborate afterwards, <laughs> although I, I reside the control to, to make that decision. Um, would you choose to live within a mile of 
a new fracking well. And I know this is something that Sue has actually potentially had to decide anyways. But Michael, would you, would you choose to buy a home within a mile of a, of a new well? No. No. Yes, all other things being, I mean, it is kind of a silly question because there's so many other things that You are, haven't kept to my rule, but, but you can elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> so yes I, or no? I, I, yeah. it, it, it wouldn't dissuade me. Now, a fun fact is Rex Tillerson, former CEO of um, ExxonMobil, um, actually sued um, because of a fracking well right next door to him. So everything <laughs> is quite local. Seriously? Um, but let's talk about, um, you know, there are people who have to live um, near these wells, and they may or may not be getting financial benefits from it. What do you say to these people? You know, Michael, I guess I'll start with you. I mean, if, if, you, if you went to somebody's house with your health impacts report and your economic impacts report in hand, how would you, how would you explain this to them when you yourself would choose not to? And perhaps you, you know, perhaps the people living next to a well don't have the financial means to live somewhere else. Yeah, so I, I won't answer your question, but... Uh, <laughs> but That's I, okay. I, it's his prerogative. <laughs> But I think what it probably opens the door to uh, is that maybe there should be forms of compensation, not just, so obviously the guys who own the mineral rights are getting compensated, uh, but maybe there should be compensation for people who live near, within a certain radius, I don't know exactly what the radius is, uh, that, uh, that don't have mineral rights. That would be one, uh, so I'm not really answering your question, but that could be a solution to the important problem you're identifying. Sue, have you been approached uh, to have an oil and gas company produce the? No, to be honest, I live in an area where for years ago, years ago, probably 20 years ago, they, they settled who was going to own the, the rights. And so, no, I have not. But I know tons of people who have in Weld County near Boulder and a variety of other places. I live in Colorado. And uh, it's a huge issue. <laughs> where some of the communities are voting to say we want to put an, a moratorium in place because of concerns about not being able to address the issue. One of the problems I think that's occurred on this topic is it, the practice that occurred in the early periods of this shale gas rev revolution where there was stealth entry into right. communities, which so people didn't really know who was buying and selling things and for what purposes. And there are a lot of bad surprises as a result of that. So I think that is changing, but that put a lot of bad, uh, bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. And also, um, raise your hand if you've seen or heard of the, the documentary Gasland. <laughs> well, so I, I was at Zero uh, Week, which is this big energy conference in Houston where the governor of Colorado, uh, John Hickenlooper, said on stage that he thinks that that film was the sole reason why France banned fracking. And so, so can you talk and about- New York, I and New say, York, I would say, and New right, York. Right, right. Um, can you talk about sort of the impact of um, sort of media, I guess myself included, but also activist media like Josh Fox, who's, who made that film Gasland. I think there's a lot of inaccuracies in that film, but nonetheless, it had a big impact. Can you talk about how, I guess, um, Jeff, I'll start with you. You know, I think, how do you think the industry should better respond to claims like that, whether or not there's any grain of truth to them? Sometimes there are, and sometimes there's not. Well, to, to me, one of the most interesting things about M Michael's studies, at Michael and co-authors, um, 
is the way they were presented in the press. Because depending on, on where you read, I mean, if you read the Grist article, um, which you helpfully provided, the coverage is completely different than you would get in other publications. Um, and, and so no matter how good the, the study is, how well it's conducted, how well its conclusions are explained, activists on both sides of the issue will use, and that's just the way it, that's just the way that it, it works. Um, I do think Gasland has, has had a big impact, and I think industry has struggled, notwithstanding, you know, the exposés that have supposedly been done and the criticisms that have been made, it, it's a real challenge. And I think, I think, I think the oil and gas industry is realizing that it, that it, it needs to worry not only about the legal issues and about the, about the regulations, but they really are now. Of course, it's been eight years, so they've been. No, a no, slow. So, so it, it <laughs> may not. But, but they're, but they're now operating in a very different environment, and and I think they are putting resources into strategic communications, and I think it's been a a, a challenge. I do think it's been a challenge, but I, but I think at least they are now putting resources in trying to figure out how to better explain what they do and, and to try to address some of the concerns that have been raised. So what kind of um, scrutiny or criticism do you have for the sort of the, the line, the storyline that came out of films like Gasland? Of course, that wasn't the only one on fracking. Um, do you think it sort of politicized the issue unnecessarily? It demonizes the issue um, in, in a way where you're only just talking about one particular issue and anecdotal evidence of things. I don't know if it, anybody recalls seeing a series in New York Times, uh, I think it was by Ian Urbina, and it made me really mad because I, I think there are legitimate problems associated with local impacts, and I think there are tremendous benefits associated with this. I just think it's really complicated, and anytime you've got a narrative that is just picking and choosing pieces of it, then you're not at the University of Chicago because <laughs> they do a good job. <laughs> but it's a real very problem. Strategic, you know, and it was surprising with <laughs> the New York Times. Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty partisan. It, it was, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of partisanship, I want to turn to Washington, D.C. Um, now, you know, there's been an hourly barrage of, of headlines on everything from the Russia controversy to Scott for its ethical lapses. But you know, if you dig deep enough, you do find some policy. And, and, and that's what I like to focus on. Um, but it seems like with, with a Republican in office, uh, fracking has gone to the back burner of federal policy. You don't, you have, environmental groups don't have a sympathetic ear in the White House. I think they would have more if um, Hillary Clinton would have won. Um, to what extent do you think anything Number one, should get done at the federal level in terms of um, government policy of, of fracking and oil and gas? Um, and what do you think can be done? And those are, of course, two very different questions. Um, does anybody want to jump in? Well, l l let me start by saying that I think that the evolution of governance over oil and gas drilling has occurred predominantly under state law. It is, you know. <laughs> That's, uh, it, there are constitutions in some states where you have to be able to develop the resource uh, and do it in a way that balances with conservation and so forth. And those are in, the, Oklahoma's an example where that's in their constitution. So there is such a body of states' rights on this 
and that creates a very varied uh, playground in terms of enforcement, the, t the types of practices, and there's been a resistance, I think, of having more standardized practices across the states. So now to your question about <coughs> federal, I do think that there are some things associated with air quality and associated with waters, waters of the U.S. and other things. No, that was just a little <laughs> sidebar joke. Um, where I thought it was called the clean water rule. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is the clean water rule. Uh, where there are larger spillover effects on different communities, which I think could call for it. I don't think we're going to see anything happen in this next little while. Jeff, what about you? I mean, do you think there needs to be, I mean, you know, the Trump administration is rolling back um, any regulations that Obama had done on fracking. I will say that a court, a federal court actually uh, rejected Obama's uh, fracking rule at the Interior Department. So there's also been some court pushback. But Jeff, can you talk about um, to what degree there should be some sort of federal response to fracking? Because so far there hasn't been. So I, I'm going to try to give a principled answer is, instead of a political answer. Because we're at the University of Chicago. We are. Um, <laughs> In, in general, when we talk about environmental law, where there are issues that really are entirely local issues and there isn't cross-border implications, I, I think that that should largely be left to the, to the state or the local governments. And, and you know, 40 years ago, there, there, were, there were legitimate arguments that states were just not capable of dealing with some of these issues. And that really is one of the reasons that we have the system that we do. But when it comes to oil and gas development, a, a lot of, you know, it's, it's not true that Texas doesn't care about these issues. They, they actually have regulators that know a lot about the industry that are involved. And so I think a lot of it can be done there. Um, I, I think there are certainly some cross-border issues where it is important for the government to step in. So that's, I, like I think- What's an example of that? Air quality in particular, where there are, you know, trans transport of air pollution over longer are areas and, in particular, methane emissions, right? I mean, so now that's, methane, not, that's, not a, that's not a local issue. So but methane, just, just a, so methane is, a, uh, is a potent greenhouse gas, and it's also the primary component of natural gas. This is the so University of Chicago. Impact. Everybody knows those things. <laughs> just raise your hand if you know what methane is. OK, just, but I saw a few hands didn't go up. But can I make just an observation? Within the industry, um, and this won't surprise some of us, you know, there are there are there are companies that would that believe it's important to have federal regulation. They they believe that they would be better off um, for in terms of public perception um, if if there are if there is federal regulation of methane or of these other things. And you know, you always worry about um, about rent seeking and whether. But I think there are people who legitimately just believe that the industry is better off to be able to point to a federal regulation. But they say, won't advocate for it. No, no, it. So actually some are. It's, but they're not going to be doing it publicly. They don't but tell I me, and I try <laughs> to get them to tell me. <laughs> I sit in different meetings maybe than, uh, than well, you. Well, tell guys. them to call me. Yeah. <laughs> I so always do. Can I just add uh, one area where I think there would be an exciting opportunity for exploring policy uh, that I'd be interested to my fellow panelists' views on uh, is, in principle, it seems like one could explore having a carbon charge uh, associated with the petroleum, the natural gas, or even the coal that you're pulling out of the ground, certainly on federal land. And then I don't know what the legal issues for doing that would be on private land, but uh, I think there's a strong case of, uh, from an economics perspective, uh, 
cross-border, international, of uh, having a carbon charge uh, associated with it. Carbon and or methane charge. Yes. Okay, lightning gas. round. Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jeff, and I think any? there was a little momentum at the end of the Obama administration towards that, but uh, that has petered out. I, I, are you talking about a charge that would be associated both with the direct emissions and also the, the emissions that come from? That are embedded in the, yeah. uh, in the fuel source. I mean, obviously, if you, had, if you had that charge only on resources developed on federal land, you end up you know, skewing things in a way that probably isn't optimal. Look, from a, from a policy perspective, I would bet everyone here would agree that if you're going to get serious about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, some sort of a, a fee or a tax is a very efficient, very effective way of doing it. Um, you know, I like to talk about things that are politically possible, <laughs> and so I wouldn't, I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about the, the details on on uh, on such things. I just don't think that that's that that's in the that's in the cards. Although that would be a very small universe of things to talk about, <laughs> seems like at the Washington level anyway. Um, you know, once I once sat in on a graduate uh, level class at Johns Hopkins um, Scythe School in Washington, and the, the subject was fracking 101. And the professor said very confidently that states can't regulate fracking, so the federal government must. This is probably around 2012. So I found that a little interesting. And, and then I Googled him, and he's a lawyer at Earth Justice, an environmental group that is, is, is quite opposed to fracking. Um, so, you know, because the federal government is not regulating, regulating fracking, I mean, do you think the states are up to the task? And, and what are you watching at the state level uh, in Colorado, of course, is ground zero, and, and Pennsylvania, and Oklahoma? Are there any particular states that you're watching on this issue? Well, I'm a former state official. Uh, in a very, very blue state, uh, Massachusetts. And so, uh, Where there's no fracking. Or resource. <laughs> there's no resource. I love it. But there were bills introduced no, in the Massachusetts. Don't, they don't want the cheap natural gas. <laughs> yeah, the well, they don't want to consume it. They don't exactly. Want to, yeah. No fracked gas sold in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. But their electricity bills are high, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, but they're lower now because of natural gas. So, there, what I was about to say is, um, I observe that in a number of states where there are either elected or appointed officials in very hydrocarbon-rich states, that their enforcement policies and other things are not what I would have considered to be up to snuff in where I was head of environmental issues in a state. So. So that's pretty controversial to say that, and it has to do with the resources and the attitudes, of course, of what you're doing in the constituency. I'll give an example, again, of, of Oklahoma. And, and I think it's an interesting case for a couple of reasons. Um, I, I am not saying they're not enforcing things, but watching what has happened there with the earthquake activity, I have observed the, the state officials who were extremely gung-ho and saying that we've got it all under control, there is no problem, and I'm talking about also from a 2010-2012 period, there's now a recognition that there are some things they didn't think were going to be happening. So there is a movement. It's been reactive. Um, but 
there's progress being made. But I, I do worry about enforcement questions. And that's part of the problem. I mean, a lot of this stuff takes time. I mean, to get the, the impacts of, of the health, you can't, you can't do it the, the year yeah. after, right? I mean, and fracking seems to be out of the, the, the top tier headlines, but it's still very much a local issue. Yeah, no, just getting the data to do that study in Pennsylvania, uh, basically, Pennsylvania had a long history of oil and gas production, but yeah. that was basically dead. <laughs> Uh, and so there was like a guy, and so we were calling the guy, and could you know he share the records with us? And he's like, yeah, I, I would love to, but you know, there's like a bazillion wells being drilled right now, and this is on my list, but it's it takes a long. I think a lot of the states were, you know, this was like a tidal wave, and I think a lot of states were not ready. Well, Pennsylvania is a good example of where they did gear up much faster than some other places. They did some others, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I. It certainly has not been my experience that, that state officials are not developing or enforcing, right? I mean, the other thing I will say is, again, this may be you know, self-serving, but for the clients that we work with, they take compliance very seriously. It's not as though the only reason they comply is because there's the threat of litigation. I mean, it's part of, it's, they have responsibilities to shareholders, to the community, so I, 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 I do think that there is effective regulation for the most part. The, the thing that I think, though, is interesting is how different states are. You have some yes. states like, let's say, Colorado, where this, at, at the state level, the state is, is, is relatively supportive of fracking and has preempted all these. So you have the state essentially saying, we are going to have development in this state, even though you have some local communities that, that don't want development nearby. And then you have New York, where polling data suggests that the areas where there's a lot of potential, you have enormous local support. And the parts of the state that are not gonna be, <laughs> that are not gonna have any activity are the parts of the state that basically control the state house and prevent it from happening. So, so you really have examples of both ways, where local communities would like it, where the state will let them do it, and other times where the state, the local communities would like to keep it out and the state is saying, no, you know, we'll, we'll set the rules here. One of the things that uh, Jeff has just said, I think is um, something I want to follow up on. And that's with regard to the, the body of companies that are involved in this. They are also not homogeneous, as you know. There are some very large uh, corporations who have been in this business for a really long time and are very clear that they want to comply and they want everybody else to comply. And then there's a very, there's a, there's a tail end effect of, yeah. of the others who could bring down the license to operate right. in some communities because of it. Jeff, we were talking about that a little, a little bit in the context of methane regulation at the federal level. Now, can you talk a little bit more about how you're seeing that play out and what do you think will be the ultimate impact of this sort of division within the industry? I mean, do you think, you know, the EPA and the Interior Department both have separate regulations on methane emissions. Do you think one of those will remain um, in some form at the end of the Trump administration? I, yes, I think, there, I, th I think there will still be some federal regulation of, of methane, both at EPA and at, at Interior. I, I think it won't look like it looks today. And, and, but unfortunately, I, I think the next time there's a democratic administration, you will see a, 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 big, a big change. And, and again, I, I think most of my clients would much prefer 
a sort of in the middle course that, that I, I mean, you know, the they idea should go on the record with me and say that, because <laughs> they don't. <laughs> but think about interior is a principally Western United States purveyor of public lands, and their jurisdiction is over drilling and production on public lands. Most of the resources are on private lands on the east eastern side of the United States, and that is where EPA would have more regulatory jurisdiction uh, that, that matters for, for air and water issues. So it's really... EPA has jurisdiction over the whole country. Well, that's true. They are they so... They are not limited to the eastern United States. Until... No, yes, I was going to make a joke, <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> Making jokes about EPA can be, can be a, a fraught effort these days. Yeah, but at, at point of fact, can EPA set the rules for drilling on federal land? Sure. Okay, thank you. See, look at that. We're, we're, we're confirming we're in agreement. here on stage. <laughs> uh, I want to do another lightning round question um, related to climate change. Do you think natural gas in particular is a net benefit for addressing climate change or a net negative? Michael, you haven't spoke for a couple of minutes. You can go. Um, uh, well, so climate change is a long-run problem. It's not a today or tomorrow problem. Uh, I'm going slight, to answer a slightly different question. I think, do I think the hydraulic fracturing revolution and its discovery of natural gas is a net benefit or a net negative? It's a net negative. Hmm. Sue, do you? I'm not sure how that differs from my question. No, no, no I was just, longer. I was just trying to step. <laughs> all right, sorry. <laughs> Uh, it's, a, it's a negative. Negative. So, so I think from a very short-term point of view, it is net positive, uh, at least in the United States and in some other places where it is moving coal out of the market share. In the long run, it is a net negative, in my opinion. Jeff? I, I don't agree with that, and I, I don't think we have enough you don't so, agree so with what exactly? I don't agree that, that fracturing is a, is a net negative. So you, do you think it's a net positive? Oh, absolutely. certainly in okay. the near term, we would all agree it, it, it most certainly is. And, and not only... Except climate change is an inherently long-term Yeah, yeah but, but, but you know, a ton of CO2 that goes into the air today is going to have an effect for 100 years. So if you eliminate it today, no matter what discount rate you use, that has a pretty important impact. So again, it depends entirely on a lot of these concepts. but. But under traditional analysis, no, but reducing the, no, a ton no, no, of no. But the supply, no. I, the way I'm interpreting Amy's important question is, uh, let's just drop all the words. Did the supply of very inexpensive fossil fuels uh, increase uh, due to hydraulic fracturing? And I think the answer is yes. It's a resounding yes. And so, like in any long-run vision of like now we have a ton more of this stuff and it's super cheap. Are we just going to let it sit there? Uh, okay, but how much coal do we have in the world today? And what's the cost of coal relative to natural gas? If you could displace what percentage of the coal with natural gas, what would it be? The other thing that we haven't talked about a whole lot, although you mentioned it, is the, the, the introduction of renewables would be much more costly and much more difficult if we didn't have natural gas as a way to provide a backup. I mean, you know, managing the grid with a lot of renewables and no natural gas would be... That's why I said in the short no. term. <laughs> well, and who knows how long that short term is going to be. Well, and so without a press on carbon, <laughs> we're going to be really behind the eight ball. I do, I mean, the essence of your question, of course, is uh, natural gas the blue bridge to the green future, or is it just a really, really, really long blue bridge? 
Now, the Sierra Club uh, launched in 2010 as Beyond Natural Gas Campaign, where it fights building new natural gas plants. Uh, and Michael Bruin, the executive director of the club, told me at the time that they were doing that because the International Energy Agency just released a report where it's, uh, one of its authors said um, the report was called The Golden Age of Gas, all about the shale natural gas revolution. And um, the head of the IEA said at the time, we're calling this a golden age of gas, not the golden age for climate. Um, so can we dig a little bit more into sort of the, the double-edged sword that it, it appears natural gas is for climate change? Maybe, Sue, I'll go to you and talk about the, the benefits of balancing it with renewables. I mean, how do you engage on this discussion with you know, other like-minded, progressive people? Like me. <laughs> so like my friend here, I completely agree that in the short run, and I would say short run in this context is not two weeks, it's many years, uh, but not 50 years. And in the absence of really great storage of a variety of different types of technologies, you cannot integrate renewables without natural gas. So I, I do think that's really important. So do I think that's then great in terms of building all sorts of new gas pipelines to deliver stuff out of Marcellus and enable us to have uh, tap into this resource? No, I think that's a problem because in the long term, we are going to be in a situation where and we, we have to reduce our carbon emissions so dramatically that I think there's problems of stranded costs. There are all sorts of issues that if you can figure out how to have a different discount rate to address some of those long-lived capital assets that people want to put in place today because of the, the wonder of shale gas, I think we are, what did you say, the bridge to? The long, long blue bridge. The long, long blue bridge is pretty scary. Can I add something? You know, one thing we should keep in mind, uh, so first of all, I'll say I think natural gas is like, if you're sitting in India or China, it's like the deal of the century. Uh, and you know they, in addition to wanting cheap energy, uh, you know they do. I'm sure they care about climate, but like what they're really suffering from is they can't breathe very well with the air pollution, and it's greatly shortening lives there. And uh, I think a global market for natural gas will develop. Uh, all those bars of all the countries that have reserves of natural gas, those guys are not going to leave that stuff sitting there forever. Uh, and it's going to start flowing around the planet, and it'll certainly flow to those two countries. And uh, that's part of my vision of the long, long blue bridge is it's going to look like a great deal to them. And do you think that's do you think that long blue bridge to places like India is good for climate change? No, I think it's going to be very good for them for uh, air pollution and right, very because, good course, for longer health for them. Embedded in, in your statement, of course, is that natural gas is, has very little traditional pollutants compared to coal. Yes. Um, but, which but, I think is overlooked in this. But, but again, given, 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 the, given the data on the mortality caused by elevated levels of PM2.5 and the... And which the, comes and, from coal plants. And the hundreds of thousands of Jeff has been reading epic research again. That would, that would, that would be saved <laughs> by switching from... So how do you compare that with the, you know, with, with the long horizon of climate change? How many lives are you willing to sacrifice over the next 20 years 
because you want to make it more expensive for people to use. So Amy fuel. was asking about climate change so narrowly. I think what you're asking Although is... Although I think we can yeah. broaden it. Yeah. <laughs> you're asking what we like to talk about here is like the global energy challenge. How do you balance uh, the need for inexpensive and reliable sources of energy that are critical for growth with concerns about air pollution and health and with concerns uh, about climate? And I think the short answer is there's no single button you can push that's going to make all three of those things move in the right direction at once. And it's going to inevitably involve trade-offs. And the problem is going to look so much different in India than it does sitting here today, where we don't really have first-order air pollution problems. So Chenier Energy, which is um, uh, one of the largest um, liquefied natural gas companies, and Tellurian, um, which is a new company that also exports natural gas. The founder of both of those companies, Sharif Suku, uh, I spoke with him um, earlier this year, or actually last year, and he told me that he supports a, a price on carbon emissions. And he, he said he thinks it should be around $40 a ton. And he doesn't support a carbon tax for, you know, altruistic reasons. Um, no private company um, or any company really does. But he supports it because natural gas is, and, you know, you know the experts here can, can offer their thoughts on this, because natural gas is poised to benefit up into a certain carbon price. And, and Tellurian is also, um, its CEO told me that it's looking to expand a non-natural gas industry and, and technologies in 20, 30 years' time. Can you talk about how even a carbon tax would actually help increase the demand for natural gas? I believe that that's the case, it, it, depending upon the price, of course. But thinking in a lot of these different markets, that's where things would go. And, and do you think that's how it should go? Because So you support a carbon tax, but you oppose long-term use of natural gas. So how do you, how do you strike the right balance there? Uh, well, when we start getting that carbon tax and carbon pricing thing, that will affect the long-term role of natural gas, in my opinion. And by long-term, you mean like post-2050, when most of us... Post any time in which you start pricing <laughs> carbon and then ratcheting it up close to the cost of carbon. Can I make... Michael has heard me make this point before. But I'm sure some of us haven't. And he always agrees with me. Um, there are, there are many parts of the world still, as Epic well knows, that, that have um, enormous poverty. Absolutely. That, that could be alleviated by, by, by a supply of, of, of energy. And in most of the world today, in, in most of the world, the cheapest way to provide that energy is with coal. Um, and and, and, and the given cheapest, not counting. Michael agrees no, no, with that? Understood. Right. No, 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 no not counting. No, purely, that's just purely, the private cost of production. The monetary the cost. cost. For, forgetting about the externalities. Yeah. And, and There's no debate about that. No, yeah. But, but, my, but, my, but my point is, um, as long as that's the case, unless you somehow think that renewables are going to um, provide the kind of reliable, affordable electricity that people want, I don't know, I think it's very hard to oppose the use of natural gas because... No, but I don't, so let, let me, let's just find a little common a, ground. I don't think any, I think man. talking about particular technologies <laughs> okay. is, uh, or fuel sources, uh, that would not be my preferred way to go. Uh, I think we should figure out how large the externalities are, so how big the climate damages are, and then, you know, 
since. Uh, so you support the social cost of carbon. It's application. <laughs> yes, I do. It's application. And, and I and I agree. And then, but you can do the same thing for you can do the same thing for the health uh, the health effects. Absolutely. And then you know let the chips let fall. Let it happen. But if you could see, you all if, agree. If, I if have one could, more question. If you could price all those externalities, my sense is you would end up encouraging the use of natural gas for quite a while into the future. So that's fine. Until, I agree with that. Until we're all retired and, and yeah. it's not our problem anymore. <laughs> oh, but um, that'll be some of us sooner than the others. <laughs> I have one more question um, from me and then um, I'm gonna throw it out to you all, so please have your questions ready. Um, there's been a growing trend among some of the, the, the largest oil and gas companies to clamp down more on methane emissions and, and, the, and even um, invest more in renewable energy. The American Petroleum Institute issued a voluntary guidelines on this issue. Uh, do you think this is serious efforts? Do you think these represent serious efforts or do you think it's more just greenwashing and posturing in the face of, a, of, of an administration that is doing very little on the issue? Jeff, so I, I, I will. I represent a lot of energy companies, and my experience has been that they take those things very seriously. It's not as though they put anything out there and say, "Well, API should do this because you know it's 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 good for our image." There's debate and discussion over all the details of those things, and so I do think that those types of policies, for the vast majority, and I, there are bad actors out there, and there are people who may not be bad actors, but are not so good actors. But for the majority of the, of the production that's out there, I think people take them very seriously. Yeah, I don't see that as greenwashing, because I, I think with the communities that they would be greenwashing to, it doesn't work in any event. So I agree with you that I think these are serious efforts. Some companies realize that they may want to diversify, but other companies may really decide that their business model is only hydrocarbons. I want to ask one more lightning round question because we are out of time, so you have to keep it short. Um, if you put yourself in, in the position of being the advisor of the next presidential candidate, whoever that may be, um, putting partisan politics aside, what would your advice be when it comes to fracking? What would you tell them in, in one sentence, him or her? Fracking is a piece of a very complicated set of policies and uh, technologies and institutional arrangements, it should not be wiped off the face of the earth. But there have to be a number of complementary policies to make sure that externalities are addressed. Uh, I would tell her to <laughs> impose a carbon tax uh, and some disclosure regulations for what's in the fracking fluids and get out of the way. Your e turn. Even if I agreed with Michael, I probably would not give that advice to a political candidate. <laughs> <laughs> I think there were some reports that Hillary Clinton actually looked at a carbon tax and opted not yes. to, but I guess that's why you're more of an economist than a, than a political advisor. Well, also her, her husband proposed the BTU tax and he right. went down in flames. Right. <laughs> but Jeff, what would your advice be on fracking? Advice is different than choosing. That's true. That's true. Advice is different than? Then, then I'm not saying if I, the question could have been if I were Hillary Clinton or if I were uh, Donald Trump, what would I have chosen given right. particular advice? <laughs> He's paying attention to my question. Yes. You know, I, remember it's lightning round, so one sentence. <laughs> not a run on, like what Sue did. <laughs> That's right. Multi-part, semicolon. So I, I would say 
fracking is enormously important, but reasonable regulation is better than no regulation at all. Great. So, well, that's a good, <laughs> succinct <laughs> sentence. Um, I want to thank the panelists and everybody joining us online and in the room. And for those of us here in Chicago, there is going to be a reception outside this room that we all hope you can join us at. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to our conversation. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.